Okay, 6.30. So thanks for coming out tonight. Uh, we were a little nervous whether we were going to have service tonight because electricity was off until just a little while ago. And it was off this morning when I got here and it came back on and went off again this afternoon after lunch. And we were wondering where we are going to be able to have service this night and then it came back on. So thanks for coming out. And you are not going to believe... Uh, how Paul starts tonight, chapter 5. In fact, Paul himself can hardly believe it, and that's how he starts. Let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for safety from the storms last night, and uh, we see your awesome power in creation and nature and the thunder and the lightning, how big you must be and how powerful you are. So, Lord, and even, even though you are that big, you are everything, you still are mindful of us, and you care for us and call us your children. So tonight we open up uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and my prayer is that you would open our minds as we open this book, and you would open our minds to know you, the one true God in Jesus whom you have sent to save us. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 5, verse 1. <clears throat> Paul said to the church, I can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on among you church people. Something that even pagans don't do. I am told that a man in your church is living in sin with his stepmother. You are so proud of yourselves, but you should be mourning in sorrow and shame. And you should remove this man from your fellowship. Sexual immorality in the church. <gasps> Surely not. That must be new, right? Things have not changed much in 2,000 years. The church at Corinth was doing something that even pagans thought was detestable. How's that for church folks? What? Incest. In the family, sexual relationships. Verse 2 makes me think that they were also struggling, and here's an important point. If you read between the lines, they were struggling with this crazy idea that freedom that Christ brings also brings freedom to sin freely. I'm going to say it again. If you read between the lines, and I'll focus on it in a minute, it looks as if that they think grace is a license to sin. Is it? He says you're so proud of yourselves, and yet this is going on in the church. How can you be proud of yourselves if this is going on in the church? The pride of many American churches today is their great depth of tolerance. In fact, tolerance in itself has become in itself a new form of religion. Let there be no mistake. It is a new form of religion, tolerance. As if that were the ultimate spiritual virtue tolerance the word in fact one of the worst things that anybody can label you put on you is you're intolerant oh no 
I wouldn't even be able to get a job, you know. You're an outcast. You're a leper. You're intolerant. As if the ultimate spiritual virtue of modern America is tolerance. Is that truth? Is that truth? What does it mean? Is tolerance the ability to accept that some people are going to do what some people do and we got to get along and we got to make the best of it? That's tolerance. That's what used to be called tolerance. But there's a new tolerance that has a religious component. The new tolerance is not only do you have to acknowledge that people are going to do what people are going to do, you have to bring their actions to an equal level of truth as your own. That you can't discriminate against their actions. All actions are equal, which basically is denies any source of absolute truth, which I reject, which God's Word rejects. There are some things that are right, some things that are wrong, some things are true, some things are false. Paul is writing to a church and he says, Paul makes it clear that this sexual sin inside the church should have brought mourning and shame and sorrow. And yet you say you're proud of yourselves. Then, then what? After the mourning and the sorrow and the shame, he makes a statement. Remove this man from your fellowship. Now let's pause for a moment. Remove what? Do what? Remove this man from your fellowship. Evidently, there is evidence that he is sleeping with his stepmother. And they know it. And the church leadership, what are you going to do? What are you going to do, church leaders? Paul said, remove this man from your fellowship. Does that seem harsh to you? Well, I can tell you it doesn't sound very tolerant. Huh? It doesn't sound tolerant, does it? Well, let's examine that point before we move deeper into chapter 5. Let me tell you what the Old Testament law required in such circumstances, and you can see that this decision of Paul is not harsh at all, not compared to the law of Moses. What was the law of Moses regarding sexual relations such as incest or having a relationship with your stepmother or your mother or your sister? What, what did the law say? Paul's a Jew. Okay, let's, let's say it what it is. Now, now, the church at Corinth is a predominantly a Gentile church. And, and we know that the Gentiles didn't have to live by the Jewish law. But don't discount that the Jewish law proclaimed righteousness. It proclaimed righteousness. What's right, what's wrong. So let's look at the Jewish law and see what it says about the idea of incest or having sex with your stepmother, for example. Leviticus 18.11 The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt. Stop and think. What's happening? He is separating a group of people unto himself. He is calling out a group of people to himself. And if I'm going to call you out to be with me, you will be different than the people you came out from. In fact, I want you to notice, you cannot be with him and be the same as everyone else. You're going to get called out. You're going to be separated. Why? His very presence is going to separate you. He says that 
you must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live. And you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan. Where you came from or where you're going, you're going to be different. Where you came from, Egypt, where you're going, Canaan, you're going to be different. Why? Because you're going to be with me. And when you're with me, you're going to be different. Where I am bringing you, do not follow their practices. What practices? Okay, here it comes. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord, your God. Look at the possessive. Your God. Does that mean that he's not the God of the Canaanites or the God of the Egyptians? You know what? He can be the God of anyone. But the question, is he your God? He has claimed Israel as his own. He has claimed them. Now, if you study the Old Testament, there were foreigners that came into the camp of Israel and participated in the Jewish law, the law of Moses, and were treated as if they were Jewish, though their bloodline was not. He says, I am the Lord your God. No one, verse 6, no one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. Why? I am the Lord. Are you seeing it? I'm calling you out. And when I call you out, you're not going to live like the world lives. Maybe that stuff goes on in the world, but it's not going to go on in my camp, in my presence. And what made, what made Israel Israel? He moved into their neighborhood. I always find that amazing. Every time I say it, I'm just blown away that God left his throne in glory and he moved in behind the veil in the tabernacle in the wilderness. He moved onto planet Earth with these people. And then he says this, verse 7, Do not dishonor your father by having sexual relations with your mother. She is your mother. Do not have relations with her. Do not have sexual relations with your father's wife. That would dishonor your father. Do not have sexual relations with your sister, either your father's daughter or your mother's daughter whether she is born in the same house or elsewhere. Stepsister, doesn't matter. No. No. Do not have sexual relations with your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter. That would dishonor you. Do not have sexual relations with the daughter of your father's wife, born to your father. She is your sister. Is this hard to understand? Somebody read this, say, well, you know, I'm just not getting it. Yeah, you are. Yeah, you are. It, nobody can read that and say, I don't understand that. It, it's clear. Don't do it. Now, let's go to Leviticus 20. What if you do? Verse 11. If a man sleeps with his father's wife, he has dishonored his father. Both the man and the woman must be, what? Put to death. Y'all think Paul is hard? Huh? Y'all think Paul's, Paul's a little tough on the church at Corinth? They must be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. Kicking someone out of the church is much, le much less tolerant, much, much more tolerant, excuse me, more tolerant than putting them to death. In fact, every time I stack those two, it's way more tolerant to say you're going to leave the fellowship than to say we're going to take you outside and throw rocks at you until you can't breathe. I thought the church age was the age of grace. 
In fact, people are going to say it, so I'll just say it for you. People are going to say, well, I thought the church age was the age of grace. The grace of God, right? We live in the age of grace. Yes, we do. Yes, absolutely true. It is the age of grace. The grace of God does something. You know what it does? It leaves us time and a place to repent so we won't die. That's what grace is. What do you think grace was? What do you think grace was? Grace is God gives you a time and a place and an opportunity and a privilege to repent so you won't die. That's grace. He didn't have to give you or me an opportunity or a time or a privilege or a motive or a desire. He didn't have to give me any of those things to repent, but he did. It's called grace, undeserved favor. And yet some people want to call the age of grace, the church age, a sin license. Oh, they would never say it like that out loud, but they live as if somehow or another grace is a license, a get-out-of-jail-free card to do whatever you want to do. Why? Because God's grace covers me. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul asked the church, God forbid. How can we who are dead to sin can remain in sin any longer? Do you not know that we died to sin? That's what he tells the church. So what is grace? Sin license? So what is Paul's real motive? He has just told the church at Corinth to kick this guy out of church. What's his motive? Because here you go. If you miss the motive, you miss what he's doing. And you miss grace. What's his motive? Why did he just tell them, kick the guy out of church fellowship? Verse 3. Even though I am not with you in person, I am with you in spirit, in the spirit. He's not there, so he's writing a letter. That's because he's not there. He says, I'm with you in spirit. And as though... I were there, I have already passed judgment on this man. Do you think Paul has authority to pass judgment? You tell him he doesn't. I'm not going to tell him he doesn't. You know what? He, he met Jesus. Jesus anointed him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. He was lifted to the third heaven and saw things unspeakable. You're going to tell him, what gives you the right to come to Corinth and tell me what to do? You go ahead. You tell him that. Because he you know what his answer is going to be? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ gave me the right. And what does he say? Verse 4. I have already passed judgment on this man in the name of the Lord Jesus. In Paul's name? Uh-uh, uh-uh. What's the judgment of Jesus? I'm in the Spirit, Paul said. Did you know it? He said, I'm in the Spirit. I'm not there in person, but I'm in the Spirit. And in the name of Jesus, the Spirit of Christ, I pronounce judgment. You must call a meeting of the church. I will be present with you in spirit, and so will the power of the Lord Jesus. In other words, the Holy Spirit's coming. Ooh, what's going to happen? Then you must throw this man out and hand him over to Satan. Why? What's the motive? What's the motive? If you read it and you miss the motive, you'll never understand what's happening. You must throw him out and hand him over to Satan so that this sinful nature, his sinful nature, will be what? Destroyed. What's Paul trying to do to this cat? Save him. How are you going to save him? He's, at, he's having sex with his stepmother. 
How are you going to save him? Throw him out of the church. Turn him over to Satan so that his sinful nature will be destroyed and he himself will be saved on the day that the Lord returns. There it is. The motive is revealed. To save this man from the death that comes in the judgment at the Lord's return. To save the man from the death that's going to come when Jesus comes. He's going to separate the sheep from the goats. It's called death. Away from me, you workers of iniquity. I don't know you. That one. There it is, church discipline. So I'm going to ask you a question. Do you believe in church discipline? Yeah, as long as it's in somebody else's church. I like hearing about it when the Baptists do it. What, 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 what do, you, do you believe in church discipline? Let me put it another way. Which is the most loving in the end? Well, before I do, let me, let me switch gears. Do you believe in discipline in your children? Which is the most loving? Because see, we, we live in a generation that increasingly believes that it is unloving to discipline your child. You spank your kid in Kroger, you might do jail time. You don't spank your kid in Kroger, he probably will do jail time. And there's the truth. Why? Which is the most loving in the end? See, we have this idea that everything is in the moment. That everything is in the moment. Well, it's going to hurt his little butt, so we don't want to hurt his little butt right now. So in the moment, we'll spare him. But what about in the end? What about in the end? What about in the after? What about when he grows up? What about when he meets the Lord? What about, what about later? It's not just about that moment. In that moment, who likes discipline? I don't know anybody likes discipline. I don't like discipline. But what about in the end? So back to the question. Do you think you should discipline your children? What if you don't? Do you think there should be discipline in the church? We're God's children. What if you don't? Which is the most loving in the end? Let's do a choice A, choice B. Let's say choice A is to go along with the sin and pretend like the sin doesn't matter so everyone can pretend like we get along. A lot of pretending going on. Let's just go along. Because you know what? If I bring this up, if I know there's sin, and I go confront that sin, or the elders of the church go confront that sin, you know it's going to make a mess. You know, they're, they're going to get all excited, and they're going, somebody's going to leave the church, and somebody's going to send me one of those emails that I get, and, yeah, it's going to be a mess. Why don't we just pretend like we don't know? I mean, if I don't know, I don't know. What can I do about what I don't know, right? I don't know. So leave it alone. Let's choice A. What's the most loving in the end? I didn't say in the moment. I'm saying in the end. What's the most loving? Choice A, leave it alone. Let's just be tolerant of tolerance. Choice B, confront the sin. Let me just say, y'all think that's fun? You want that job? Can I call on one of y'all to do that next time? I'll call it out and I'll call you and you go do it. I don't know anybody wants that job. Confront the sin with the truth 
in hopes that truth will lead to repentance and repentance will lead to forgiveness, which leads to eternal life in Christ Jesus. Which is the most loving in the end? The sinful nature will never be destroyed through tolerance. I'm going to say it again. The sinful nature will never be destroyed through tolerance. Only truth will do it, and truth has a name. Jesus. Many American churches are openly boasting about their loving tolerance to what is obviously sin. And so was Corinth that day. Let me repeat verse 6. Your boasting about this is terrible. Actually, I'm not repeating. It's new. Your boasting about this, what? What? What's the, what's the, what's the topic? There, there's sexual sin inside the church. Your boasting about this is terrible. Don't you realize that this sin is like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough? Yeast is a symbol of sin, and sin must be identified as a cancer that destroys the body. Yes, there will always be sin inside the body. There will always be sin inside the church. No matter what happens, the church will always have sin inside the assembly. I don't want to shock anybody or make you leave here with a broken heart, but in this room tonight, there is sin. It's here. The church will never be free from that sin until Christ comes and transforms us completely into his likeness. That's not the point of chapter 5. That's not the point. The cancer of sin will not destroy the body. Listen carefully. Sin is a cancer. The cancer of sin will not destroy the body, the church, as long as it's diagnosed as cancer and treated as cancer. Are you, are you with me? It cannot destroy the church. The church is the body of Christ. There is sin in the body, but that sin cannot destroy the body as long as that sin is diagnosed as a cancer and it's treated as a cancer. But when cancer is considered normal alongside other cells in the body, the body will soon be destroyed by that same cancer. Why? Because you won't treat it as a sickness. You will treat it as normal. And you will die. That's what sin is. The miracle of Christ in the church age is what? I want to tell you, you know what the miracle, people say that there's no miracles anymore. You know what the miracle of Christ in the church age is? That there is forgiveness of sins through repentance under the blood of Christ. It's a miracle. You think he has to do that? You think he owes you that? He owes me that? He doesn't owe me anything. That's what grace is. That's the miracle. Is that if I will repent, of, if I will confess, admit what he already knows, if I'll admit that I have sinned against him, confess it openly to him, run to him and tell him, he'll forgive me. He'll, what sin? He takes it away. 
But what, it, what happens when I refuse to acknowledge it? The cancer grows. And it grows. And it grows. And it grows. Until what happens? You die. You die. Repentance can only take place when the sin is identified as sin. When the cancer is called cancer and the truth that cancer left untreated will kill the whole body. When yeast, I didn't use the illustration of yeast, Paul did. When yeast is fully mixed into the dough. You know, I, I'm not much of a cook, but I, I have made biscuits on a few rare occasions a long time ago. But, but if you mix that yeast inside that dough and get it mixed in, it is very difficult, perhaps impossible, to save the batch of dough from the yeast. Why? Because once it becomes mixed inside the dough, you can't separate it anymore. And what is Paul's illustration of sin in the church? Yeast. And once it gets in there, you, you, better, you better carve off that piece of dough. You, you better cut it off. Why? Because if you don't cut it off, and it blends into that church, if it gets into that body, and nobody calls sin, sin anymore. The whole batch of dough's gonna die. You think that's a, a stretch? Okay, let's go to seven through eight. Okay, you think it's a stretch? You, you think I'm taking something out of context? Let's go to the next verse, seven through eight. Get rid of the old yeast by removing this wicked person from among you. Do you think it's a stretch that yeast is this guy that's having sex with his stepmother? Can you read? Get rid of the old yeast by removing this wicked person. Sexual sin is wickedness. Get rid of the old yeast by removing this wicked person from among you. Then, then what happens if you, if you remove this guy from the body? If you do church discipline, sir, we're going to ask you to leave the church until you're able to reconcile yourself with Christ through repentance. Okay? Then, you'll be like a fresh batch of dough made, listen, 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 without yeast. Fresh batch of dough, no yeast. No yeast. What's yeast? A picture of, spiritual picture of yeast is a spiritual picture of what? Sin. It's not my picture. I did not paint that picture. I'm going to read to you where that picture comes from. You, then you can become a fresh batch of dough made without yeast, which is what you really are. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. Now, why is he, why is he now connecting the dots to Christ, the Passover lamb, and yeast? Why is he? Because I'm not doing it. He's doing it. Then you'll be like a fresh batch of dough made without yeast, which is what you really are, church people. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. So let us celebrate the festival, not with the old bread of wickedness, that's that yeast in the bread stuff, wickedness and evil, but with the new bread of sincerity and, what's the next word? Truth. What is the truth? You see, the Jews experienced the Passover in Egypt 
when death passed over their houses, but not the houses of the Egyptians. God made a distinction between the two people. So how were the Jews to prepare for that Passover that would save their lives? Listen, I didn't make the linkage, but you better figure out the linkage because Paul has Christ in him and he is linking Jesus, the Passover, to the old bread that's got yeast in it. Okay? He's linking it. What, what is, so how were the Jews... Okay, Moses tells the people, because God told Moses, death's coming. Okay? You don't have to guess. Death's coming. How do you prepare to not die? Let's make it simple. How do you prepare to not die? Exodus 12, 7. I'm going back. I want to know how you prepare to not die. I want to prepare to not die, okay? They are to take some of the blood of the lamb. They're going to kill a lamb. They're to take some of the blood and smear it on the side and tops of the door frames of their houses in Egypt where they eat the animal. So they're going to take the blood and they're going to put it on the outside. And they're going to take the animal and they're going to put it on the inside. They're going to eat that animal. Everybody stay with me. They're going to take the blood of that animal and put it over their door. And they're going to take the, the flesh of that animal and they're going to put it inside their bodies. What are they doing? They're preparing for death to not get them. What do you think the Passover is? What's passing over? Death. Verse 8. That same night they must roast the meat over a fire and eat it along with bitter salad greens and bread made without yeast. The bread and the blood. Anybody see the Lord's Supper? What's happening in Egypt? Can I just tell you what's happening in Egypt? Jesus is happening in Egypt. He's being revealed. He's being revealed. Jesus is being revealed in Egypt. Jesus is your Passover. He is my Passover. And, and, and the picture of bread and blood, the bread must not have any yeast in it, and the bread is to be eaten. It cannot have any yeast in it. The sin is the yeast, and the bread cannot have any yeast, cannot have any sin in it. And it has to go inside of you. So sinlessness must come inside of me. Right? Sinlessness. Bread without yeast must come inside of me. The bread goes on, in, on the inside of us and the blood covers us and death passes over us. You can't make this up. But some say... Some say today in American church, it's okay to have this yeast. And the blood covers the yeast. Terry, lighten up, Terry, because the blood covers the yeast. Right? Really? Does the blood cover the yeast? That's the question. What are we talking about? We're talking about life and death. When death comes over your house that night, you don't want to be wrong about this. 
This is a bad place to be wrong. Exodus 12, 19. During those seven days, there must be no trace of yeast, trace of yeast in your homes. Anyone who eats anything made with yeast during this week will be cut off from the community of Israel. Well, what's happening to this guy at Church of Corinth? He's going to be cut off from the community, not of Israel, from the community of the believers. Why? Because he's got yeast in him. I'm going to read it again. There must be no trace of yeast in your homes. Anyone who eats anything made with yeast during this week will be cut off from the community of Israel. These regulations apply both to foreigners living among you and to native blood-born Israelites. During those days, you must not eat anything made with yeast. Wherever you live, eat only bread made without yeast. This is the continual repetitive Passover celebration for future generations of Israel. Now, now that's the Old Testament, okay? Somebody say, well, what does that have to do with us? We're in the church age. We're in the age of grace. All right, let's go to Galatians. Paul writes to church at Galatia. What's he say about it? Chapter 5. You were running the race so well. Who has held you back from following the truth? It certainly isn't God who's holding you back from following the truth. It certainly isn't God, for he is the one who called you to what? Don't miss it. We're running a race. What? Are you running a race to get to where you're dead? No. You're running a race to get to where you're alive, right? So who held you back from the truth? Because the truth's what's going to keep you alive. It, it certainly isn't God. Verse 8, look what he says. It certainly isn't God. God's not holding you back. For he is the one who called you to freedom. Here it comes, verse 9. This false teaching is like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough. What's false teaching? Anything that's not true. So who gets to decide what's true? God already decided what's true. And he wrote it down so you'd have a copy of it. Verse 10, I am trusting the Lord to keep you from believing false teaching. God will judge that person, whoever he is, who has been confusing you. About what? About the truth. About what about the truth? About freedom. You will never have the freedom to do that which is wrong. There's no such thing. God has not given you or I the freedom to do that which is wrong. So how is the church to function in the modern world of unbelievers? The same way the church did it then. The word church actually means the called out ones. Called out from the world to be separate from the world. Now I know some of you are already thinking, you know what, if we practice church discipline today... We're going to be weird people. We're going to be looked at as an unusual people. Do you think the church at Corinth, do you think any of the churches in the first century were considered to be normal in the world's population? They were considered different, weird. Israel was called out in the Old Testament to be separate from the world, right? 
I mean, you can't read the Old Testament and not come to that conclusion. In fact, the Jews, even today, I mean, even today, the Jews are so different. In fact, I'm convinced that one of the reasons for anti-Semitism, which is the hatred of Jewish people, is because they won't be like everybody else. Listen to what I'm saying. The reason, why, why did Hitler try to kill the Jews? I mean, he had a world war going on. Why don't you deal with that first? Because they would not be like the world. They wouldn't do it. They remained separate. And it made the people like Hitler hate them. Even today, there are people that hate Jewish people. Why? Because, because they refuse to integrate into the world's ideologies. They, they, they remain separate. So listen carefully to what I'm saying. Israel was called out in the Old Testament to be separate from the world and to and because they were separate, they were going to be used of God to reveal the glory of God to the world. And now it's time for the church to do the same thing. But we will never accomplish that by embracing sin as if tolerance is the way to God's grace. So, let me repeat verses 6 through 8, and then we'll jump back into this 1 Corinthians. Your boasting about this is terrible. Don't you realize that the sin is like a little yeast that spreads throughout the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast by removing this wicked person from among you. Then you'll be like a fresh batch of dough made without yeast, which is really, which is what you really are. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. So let us celebrate the festival, not with old bread of wickedness, and evil, but with the new bread of sincerity and truth. Now here it comes, verse 9. When I wrote to you before, I told you something, church people. I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. Stay with me. Don't miss what I'm about to say. When I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who are involved in sexual sin who indulge in sexual sin. But I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin. Are you with me? When I wrote to you, I told you don't hang out with people who are messed up in sexual sin. But I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin. And here it comes. And greedy, and they cheat people, and they worship idols. You would have to leave this world to not to avoid those people. So who were you talking about? So Paul, if you wrote me a letter and said, don't hang out with people involved in sexual sin and they're not greedy people, don't hang out with cheats and don't hang out with idolaters, if, you, if that's not who you were talking about, who were you talking about? Because you said don't hang out with them. Who was it? Verse 11, I meant that you are not to associate with anyone who, here it comes, claims to be a believer and yet indulges in sexual sin or is greedy or worships idols or is abusive or is a drunkard or cheats people. Don't even eat with such people. What's the difference? Unbelievers are unbelievers because they're unbelievers. 
Okay? You know why unbelievers do what unbelievers do? Because they don't believe. And they're only acting out their nature. They're only doing what an unbeliever would naturally do. You can't distance yourself from them. You'd have to leave earth. Okay? You'd have to leave the planet. So who's he talking about? Fakers. People who come into the church and they say they believe and yet they live as an unbeliever. They say they believe, but they live as an unbeliever. So here's the question. Here's the question. Why would an unbeliever come to a group of believers meeting? Say again. So what would make an unbeliever come to a gathering of believers? So we can believe? Well, that'd be one option. But why would he remain in unbelief amongst the group of believers? Why? He's deceived. He's deceived. Are the deceived people in the church? Yes. I don't know who they are. You can fake me out all day long. But I can tell you what, God knows who they are. He says, don't even eat with such people. Celebrate. Celebrate your newfound freedom with new bread of sincerity and truth. Not yeast-filled bread. But he says something. It's very clear. You know how strange this is to the modern American church? Do not associate. Separate yourself. Separate the church from those who claim to be believers, and yet they deny the truth. They claim to be believers and deny the truth. It is, a, is it a point of fellowship? Yes. By the way, this isn't just about sexual sin. I need to make a strong point here. Because this story started tonight with a man having sex with his stepmother. But if you think that that's the only issue in this study tonight, you have missed it. This is not just about sexual sin. It includes all forms of sin. Be very careful, church. And hey, let, me, let me highlight one. Let me highlight one that many in the American church are already are deceived by. Here, here it comes. Do you know what, you know what church-age idolatry looks like? I didn't say it, okay? The Apostle Paul writes the church at Colossae, and he describes church-age idolatry. You know what church-age idolatry looks like? Do you think it looks like a golden calf that you go bow down to? Uh-uh. Do you think it looks like an Asherah pole or a, a Baal thing? You, you think it's what it looks No. You know what it looks like? Greed. One translation calls it covetousness. An insatiable desire for things. An insatiable desire for stuff. More. More, more, more. Is that in the American church? No. You know what he calls it? I don't call it, you know what he calls it? Idolatry. Why? What's the first commandment? What's the second commandment? Ten commandments. What's the first one? You should have no other gods before me. 
Do not make unto yourself a graven image. Don't put anything between me and you. You ever notice that the first two commandments deal with our relationship with God and the rest of them pretty much deal with our relationship with each other? But you'll never be able to deal with the relationship between us until you deal with the relationship between us and him. And what's the number one? Do you think it's number one by accident? What's the number one? What's the number one? You think, well, I don't really think it matters which one was first. You, you think nothing between me and you. Nothing. What's money do? What can money do? Is money evil? Money's not evil. I like money. It's fine. But you know, when the pursuit of your life becomes money, it just walked its way in between me and God. When the decisions in your life have more to do with money than they do God, you've got an idol. It's not a golden calf, but it's the same thing. So when we read this tonight and you say, well, you know, I'm glad I'm not having sex with my stepmother. Whew, Whew that was close. And you missed the fact that greed is the same thing. Covetousness is the same thing. Why? Because you make a decision based upon money rather than based upon the truth of God. We want to consider some sexual sins as felonies against God. I get it. You know what? I get it. I struggle with it myself. Because sexual sin, I mean, sleeping with your stepmother, that's a felony, Right? But this greed thing, that's, that's a misdemeanor, right? All you get is a ticket for that. I mean, they don't put you in jail for misdemeanors. Yeast is yeast. Everybody listen to me, yeast is yeast. Finally, Paul finishes chapter 5 with this summary. Verse 12. By the way, I'm going to guess very few people in church know what I'm about to read. I'm going to make that option A. Or option B is they've heard it and decided not to believe it. Because I see very few churches who act out what I'm about to read. Here we go. Paul says, it isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. So the next time you go to work and you say something about truth or righteousness or yeast, now don't do yeast because they're going to think you're nuts. Just do truth and righteousness and right and wrong. When you do that and somebody says, who makes you the judge? You can say, well, you know what? It's not my responsibility to judge anybody outside the church. But God has called me in the fellowship of believers to judge those inside the church. That we as the body will hold each other accountable. Because, you know, if I get cancer in this hand, I want this part of the body to call that cancer so it can be dealt with before it goes up my arm and takes my life. It doesn't make any sense that this hand's going to say, well, that cancer's over there and I'm over here. So what in the world is that cancer going to do with me? Because that cancer is going to come get me. Because it's in the body. 
And if I don't call cancer, cancer, it's going to grow until the whole body is going to experience death. It is my responsibility. It is your responsibility to call cancer, cancer. Call yeast, yeast. Call sin, sin. Why? So that I proclaim some sense of self-righteousness? Oh, yeah, I'm the left hand. You're the messed up right hand. No, no, no. It's, it's life. It's life. Because when repentance is the acknowledgement that I have cancer and seek the cure to eradicate the sickness. Oh, I don't want to tell him he's got cancer. That might offend him. Really? You want that doctor? You want to go to the doctor? And he, he does the blood work, and he says, you know, you've got cancer. It's early stages, but you've got cancer. But you know what? If I tell them, it'll ruin the rest of their day. So I won't tell them they've got cancer. Oh, well, the nurse says, but they'll die. Yeah, but what will it do to the rest of their weekend? You got sin. I got sin. I got yeast. There's a cure. The blood of Christ. It cures the sickness. And you're worried about offending somebody? Really? I'm going to go back to 12. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders. He's talking to a church, right? So outside the church. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the churches who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside. But as the scriptures say, you must remove the evil person from among you. We don't have the authority or the responsibility to judge unbelievers. And to that I say, hallelujah. You know what? I don't want that job. You want that job? I don't want it. But we certainly do have the authority and the responsibility to judge believers. Why? Because we have all agreed, whether or not you know it or not, when you join the body of Christ, when you join the body of believers, we have all agreed to live under the same standard. Now some people, once they realize that, they, whew, they're out the door. Well, that wasn't, I didn't read the fine print. Okay, you know what the fine print is? It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. You get it? That's the fine print. Well, you didn't tell me that. Well, maybe I should have been more clear. When you join the church, you agree to live under the fine print, the authority of God's Word. Most Christians don't realize that joining the body of Christ, the church, is to submit themselves to the authority of that same body. And the head of that body is not Terry Cooper. It's not the elders. The head of this body is Jesus Christ. He's the boss. And you know what? He's here right now. And you might be faking out your wife, and you might be faking out your husband, and you might be faking out your kids, and you might be faking out your coworkers, but ain't nobody in this room faking him out. He knows if there's any yeast inside of you, and he knows what you're doing with it. You know what? You can bring that out, turn to Christ, say, would you take this? He'll take it. 
and he'll give you bread without yeast. But he won't make you take bread without yeast, but he'll give it to you. Let me jump to chapter 10 to explain chapter 5, verse 15. You are reasonable people. Decide for yourselves if what I'm saying is true. When we bless the cup at the Lord's table, when we take communion, aren't we sharing in the body of Christ? What, what do you think is happening at communion? You know what we're all doing? We're passing this cup. Or you know we're sharing the blood of Jesus? We're all drinking the blood of Jesus. You're reasonable people. Did you know that's what we're doing? Well, nobody really explained that to me. And when you break the bread, aren't you sharing the body of Christ? You think it's got yeast in it? No, it doesn't. We're sharing. We get together on Sunday. We had 810 people Sunday and 810 people. I don't know how many took communion. But we, 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 we all took the, the blood of Christ and we shared the blood of Christ and we shared the body of Christ. Because we're, we're, we're the body of Christ. We're, he's the head, we're the body. We're participating in each other. Verse 17, and though we are many, we all eat from one loaf of bread, showing that we are one body. So how does this one body called the church react toward each other? Live with each other as we live apart from the world and the, and the ways of the world. Ephesians 5.21. And further, so how do we do it? How, what's the practical application of all this information? Ephesians 5.21. And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Everybody look around. Take your head, spin around. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It means my way is not paramount. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now, I'm going to just say something. If you're a woman and you're in the room tonight and you are offended by that, you have a problem. You have a problem. You need to deal with it. I'm going to tell you the truth. For a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so the wives must submit to your husbands in everything. You know why I put that in there? Do you recognize how strange these teachings and standards are to the unbelieving world? That doesn't scare me. You know what scares me? Is that those same teachings are strange to the church. That scares me. That scares me. It does. Because when the church becomes like the world, the church is no longer the church. Submitting and humbling ourselves to each other in the church and taking the lower position of others on purpose, how crazy does that look to the world? How crazy is that to the world? The church is truly separate and different than the unbelieving world. But we must not think that the church is to huddle up and hide from the world. No, no, no. 
Are we different from the world? Absolutely we're different from the world. But that doesn't mean we, we become recluse, that we withdraw. No, no, I'm going to tell you, we're on offense. Everything Jesus told the church is offense. So I'm going to read 9 through 13 and wrap this up. Here we go. When I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. But I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin or are greedy or cheat people or worship idols. You would have to leave this world to avoid people like that. I meant that you are not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer yet indulges in sexual sin or is greedy or worships idols or is abusive or is a drunkard or cheats people. Don't even eat with such people. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders. But it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside. But as scriptures say, you must remove the evil person from among you. Here's my point. We in this room live under the standard of the word of God. It's called truth. And he has told us to go and make disciples of all nations. You're not going to be able to say you didn't know. I can't say I didn't know, because I do know. Go make disciples. Terry Cooper, go make disciples. You, go make disciples. We are not on defense. Listen, we are not on defense. The idea of defense, if you ever played football or play any kind of sports, you go back and you guard your line. You defend your territory. No, no, we're on offense. We're moving out. Go into all the world and make disciples. You can't do that on defense. Ladies and gentlemen, you cannot make disciples on defense. You make disciples on offense. We go. We tell people. I'm not apologizing for the truth. I'm not going to apologize to somebody for life. It's life. We are on offense, but know this. Our offense will be offensive to those who refuse to believe. Offense will be offensive. Inside the church, we must hold to the word and make every effort to live our lives free from sin. And when sin, and it will, and when sin does occur, we must turn our repentant heart toward our merciful and forgiving God and ask for his divine mercy to purify us individually and to remove the yeast of sin from among us all. And he will. He is merciful. He is gracious, and if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why? Because he is a holy, loving father. How strange is this teaching to the world? Very. How strange is this teaching to the church? Well, that's the frightening part. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you would open our eyes, our ears, our hearts. Show us what the scriptures mean, that we might live under their authority and power. Tonight we submit ourselves to the head of the church, Jesus Christ our Lord. And we pray that his power would reign in us, through us, around us, for the glory of his own name. We pray this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for being here tonight.